there's a significant overspend on lead generation and an underspend on helping sales close bigger deals faster and with a higher win rate. You're listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast, a daily podcast dedicated to helping B2B marketing, sales, and customer success professionals become masters of their craft. Today, you'll hear an episode from our Takeover Tuesday series. Every month, we ask a different practitioner or thought leader to host a series of interviews that cover a specific theme that's relevant to our community. And like Sangram always says, without a community, you are simply a commodity. Here we go. Sangram here. Welcome to the Flip My Phone podcast. This is Tuesday Takeover series, and we are in the fourth and the fifth, almost the final two rounds of this podcast series where my good friend, Steve Bott, he is the ABM strategist for Corey, and he has been interviewing some incredible guests. If you haven't listened so far, go back and go back a few Tuesdays. Eric Martin from SAP talks about how to create a 300 company market to one. How do you do that? Bob Peterson from Sys Decisions, he talks about brand and demand. How do they work together? Then we have David, David Cherico, who's with Corey, and he talked about tech stack, like really getting into technology of it, not just strategy. And now both of our good friend, Chris Ingham, seems like to be the fourth and the fifth one. So I'm really excited to hear more about what you guys talked about so people get up to, up to speed on it. So Steve, welcome to the show. And thank you so much again for, for doing this entire series. Well, thank you, Sangram. I'm loving this. And, and this, this one's wild. Two of my favorite people, Sangram Vajra and Chris Engman, coming together in one place. And I did a episode that turned into two episodes with Chris last year when he was uh, in the process of launching the Mega Deals book. And yeah. it was a fascinating exploration of the whole idea of these massive multi-billion dollar deals and what goes on inside them from a sales perspective and a marketing perspective. And Chris and I set out to do an episode. And, and then as we approached the 40 minute mark, oh yeah, we're only, we're not even halfway done. And so it turned into a two episode part. And the same thing happened this time. Yeah. So well, Chris have, and I let, let me set do an episode talking. about the role of brand in beauty. And you know, where, where does brand come into play in B2B and in enterprise ABM more specifically? And like happened last time, this turned into a two-parter because Chris is such a wealth of information and insight and experience. So Chris Engman from Proof Analytics is the guest in this two-part series on brand within sophisticated enterprise, B2B, and ABM. Let's do it. Let's dive into it. Please join me in welcoming Chris Engman. Regular listeners of Flip My Funnel may recall that Chris and I did two episodes together a few months back talking about mega deals. Chris and his co-authors wrote an amazing book about what really goes into landing really large, complex B2B deals. For anyone who has not investigated the book Mega Deals, you really ought to. It's a fantastic read. It's certainly impacted the way I think and the way I work in a number of areas. That's not what we're talking about today, or at least not specifically. We're talking today about brand, about the power of brand in enterprise B2B 
and in account-based marketing, the difficulties of measuring brand and all the different ways that mega deals and brand and other things come together as a powerful force in winning big deals. Chris Engman, in addition to his mega deals hat, he's also CRO, CMO, and lead investor in Proof Analytics. And he'll tell us a little bit about what that firm does and what they bring to this really important and really complicated space. So without further ado, Chris, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Steve. Uh, it's always a pleasure to speak to you. I just chatted to a friend of mine. Let's not go into that too deep, but he said it's amazing to speak with Steve. He's a, I mean, for some reason, it typically flows very, very well when we speak. <laughs> it's it's funny. We... <laughs> Thanks. You know what? I, though, I don't feel like we're flowing today because I never know how to introduce you. You wear so many hats. <laughs> you do so many different things. I feel like I, I could spend five minutes introducing you and I stumble right. over my words because it's like, okay, here's just like a really smart guy who, who has a whole lot of important stuff to say about B2B. Okay, go. Uh, <laughs> right, right, right. No, but I've always felt that we, we, it, it's kind of free-flowing. So let's see if we can achieve that today. Free-flowing uh, indeed. This is not going to be a uh, routine Q&A. You know, we bit off a big topic here, right? Brand in B2B, brand in ABM. And yeah. uh, there's a lot of different ways of going at that. How do yeah, you want to yeah. start? First, a connection to, to mega deals. Uh, our big research study uh, covering companies all over the world. And uh, over 100 people have participated in the, in the work. Uh, led up to the book Mega Deals. Uh, the connection to proof analytics is that so Mega Deals is based on research. So, like several hour interviews where we've tested out hypotheses with really smart people from the Mega Deals space, both from the marketing and the sales side. Whereas proof is actually attacking the same domain, but using a quantitative approach. So, Proof is using mathematics to figure out what is driving what. I know that you said in mega deals that brand matters a lot in large complex deals and yeah. that trust matters a lot and that a strong brand creates trust. Is that really what it's about? Is, is the power yeah, of brand yeah. big? Is it really about trust or is there more to it than that? Well, so, so let's look at it from a few perspectives. So first of all, when we run uh, marketing mix modeling with our B2B clients, we typically see a few things repetitively. First of all, uh, and this has especially become the case in the last five years, there's an overemphasis on the short term in the B2B space. So there's, a, there's an overspend on lead generation. So if you cut uh, the whole funnel into three large chunks, you have lead generation, you have the deal closing, and then you have, okay, how do I expand this account? So kind of deal expansion or cross-selling, whatever you want to call it. So if you look at those three phases, there's a significant overspend on lead generation and an underspend on helping sales close bigger deals faster and with a higher win rate. There's a way too little spend on that, which is actually the core of ABM, I would say, it's, it's, it's a bit sometimes overly used on lead generation as well. But I, you know, the biggest domain for ABM, I even called it pipeline marketing in the early days, which is like marketing towards your pipeline, both existing and new logos, uh, where you either want to win the first deal or you want to expand existing account. And those two phases are underinvested. We see that we saw it in the Megalist research. We see it in the proof analytics 
cases as well, which is quite, quite interesting. So actually, to, on that domain, we've come to the same conclusion. Another thing which is similar to the Megadil research is that the power of the brand is critical in B2B. So there are actually other studies as well that have shown that the, the B2B, the strength of the B2B brand is more important than for a B2C case. And I think the, it's, it's, it's actually pretty simple because one of the cornerstones that we really dwelled upon in the Megadil research is risk mitigation. So we even stated a quote, which is, value is bringing you through the door risk mitigation is closing deals. So, and risk mitigation is very much built on like real risk mitigation, but it's also based on things like trust. And trust can be influenced by real things, but also imaginary things. And if your marketing programs are great, you're increasing the trust level among your buyers. And therefore, you'll see a faster conversion and a higher win rate. So a lot of people misunderstand the brand and they think it's all about awareness. It's actually more, yeah, it is about awareness, but it's more about confidence and trust. Do I have the confidence that this vendor has the capabilities of delivering what they say? So are they capable? And the other one is trust is more related to ethical. I mean, are you trust? If something goes wrong, will you still help them or will you abuse the situation and pulling the rug underneath them, things like that. So large deals are to a large extent based on risk mitigation and people in sales and marketing are often trained to talk too much about value and differentiation. But again, value and differentiation, they're taking it through the door, they're not closing the deals. In the end, or especially for larger amounts, you're picking the vendor where you don't think it'll fail. And also where you don't think, because you know it will fail, because large deals are always, this might sound weird, but they are always to some extent failing because they're just so complex. So you will fail. You will have at least maybe not a failure, but small failures along the way. And whenever something like that happens, you need to be able to rely on the vendor not abusing you. I mean, most people listening to this, especially from the IT industry, large enterprise software, you cannot cover everything in a contract. There's a trust layer, and hence, there's a big dependency on things like the brand. Uh, so yes, the brand is even more important in the B2B space than in the B2C space. We see the same as other studies have shown. Uh, and what's a bit funny, though, and I went against this stream when I was doing uh, sales and marketing at Climo, which is a definitely a mega deals company where we went from three to $90 million in order intake over a two-year period and, and definitely used the, the Megadil's recipe. And one of the things was definitely based on the input from Proof, where I was at this point in time an early-stage investor. And then later, when leaving Climon, I, I went in big time into Proof as a much bigger investor. Uh, like, uh, so one of the things that Mark, the founder of Proof, whispered in my ear was that, you know, all the B2B cases Proof is involved with can see a significant underinvestment in marketing overall. If you put marketing uh, and sales uh, as like two driving forces, marketing is significantly underfunded, whereas the sales force is normally significantly overfunded. So there's a too high belief on feet on the ground. And there's, an, there's a too low belief in the power of marketing. And when you do spend money on marketing, you spend lead generation, whereas the big win is spending it on deal acceleration or pipeline acceleration and 
uh, increasing deal size, but also increasing the value of existing clients. So, so when going into climb on, I knew this from Mark, and I, I dared to trust it because we saw similar things in the negatives research. So I was going, okay, okay, I said to the founders of Climon, I want to spend more money on marketing than on the sales force, which is almost unheard of in the B2B space. And if anyone listening to this can honestly say they're spending more money on marketing than on sales, please ping me because I'd like to chat with you individually. Uh, I, I want to hear what you found because we spend more money on marketing than on sales and we grew 3,000% in two years selling pretty slow moving stuff, power plants. That is a really interesting thing. Okay, where as always happens whenever you and I talk, um, there's, there's about 10 different threads I could pull on <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I have to decide where to start. A couple things I want to park and maybe come back to. I want to, I want to come back to what you just said about spending more on marketing on sales. And of course, and we have PR, to get... PR, PR is, by the way, also underfunded. Seriously okay. Yeah. All right. So we're going we're gonna to make a note to come back there. We also, of course, need to dig into the measurement piece because it's one thing to say that brand is super important. It's another thing to solve for, can it be measured? And if so, how? Right. We're going to park right. that for a moment, although that's mm-hmm. going to make up a big part of what we're going to talk about. What I want to pull on right now, though, is when you say that brand is vital for mitigating risk in large, complex deals, Mm. and that mitigating risk is one of, if not the key elements, some may take from that that the big guy always wins. Nobody gets fired for hiring IBM, people used to say. You might think that the big guy always wins. I mean, if, if if I'm the buyer and I am evaluating the risk and reward of being the champion, and I'm thinking, well, if I take a flyer on this small guy and it goes bad, I'm probably going to get fired. But, you know, if I play it safe, well, I'm probably covering my own butt. But obviously, history bears out that the big guy doesn't always win. The smaller guys, no. the innovators, they do win these deals. Right. How, how does that happen? Is it, is it ultimately about differentiation? Is it about attacking the problem in a completely different way? Or what do right. you do when you are? the small guy and you are up against a dominant global brand. Right. So actually, if you are doing connected to the main topic of your podcast, if you're doing amazing ABM, you can definitely change the game because if you're targeting, uh, let's say you're up, you're you're trying to do five large deals in in half a year and, and you are doing great advertising and other types of ABM towards those the employees of those five accounts, you can not only increase the strength of the brand, but you can also increase actually the the trust levels, uh, which is a subset of the brand. Since you have the targeting capabilities, you can really paint the picture of the perfect match between that buyer and and your organization. And in my experience, and I, I know you probably agree to this, so even though, I mean, I started together with Demandbase, we were the first doing ABM in the world, that was 2007, and we were two years ahead of Demandbase doing the IP-targeted advertising. Even though ABM has been around for a while now, I see very, very, very few, I mean, they exist. I mean, probably quite a few of the listeners to York because you probably have a lot of the cutting-edge people. But if you take the whole market, ABM is still in its infancy, which is a bit interesting because 
we we started doing it 2007. So so we're now 13 years later. It's actually almost the same with I, I speak often to Mark Organ who who, who created a. I mean, he's from your city. He created Eloqua. He, uh, he says the same. Like, it's funny. Like, people are going like, yeah, we're finally implementing marketing automation. He's like, that's 20 years ago. That he, so he's even bored of that topic. He doesn't want to talk about it much. But anyway, uh, so with great ABM programs, you, can, you can't convince the world that you're stronger than Siemens. But on very selected accounts, you can convince the audience in those accounts that you're better than Siemens. And also that you're even safer than Siemens because there are always disadvantages with the big players. For example, what's quite common among younger companies is that they talk about, like for example, Improve, we talk about automated marketing mix modeling. And when we talk about the incumbents, we call them traditional marketing mix modeling companies because they delivered as a consulting product and we're the first automated platform built for it. So by actually talking about, we call it plus one. So we talk about the MMM category, but our plus one is actually a big thing, but we almost make it smaller intentionally to, to lower the risk feeling. So we say we've only automated uh, the consulting model. So, so all of a sudden you can run it in minutes instead of weeks and months at a way lower price. You can do it on a monthly basis throughout all your countries. So all of a sudden, we make the traditional MMM players look less safe. You know what I mean? So we're, we're making, and this is actually important to, to uh, big deals. This is coming from a blend of proof and mega deals. So you benefit from being a bit different, not entirely different. I mean, we could choose to call what we do something else, but we've chosen, because it is marketing mix modeling, it's just automated. So we've intentionally only done a plus one Instead of saying, this is something entirely new, we rather go in and say, it's the same category, it's just the next generation, which is a much smaller leap for the buyers. And we target primarily, actually, the lowest hanging fruit for us is the big B2B and B2C brands that are already doing marketing mix modeling, and they already have budgets for it. So we, we come in and say, you already do it, and you know the weaknesses of the high cost, the slow execution time and um, the low ability to scale it globally. They go, yeah, totally, you know that. So, so then we actually, as a new player, we're, we feel less risky. So sorry for a very long answer. But- That's an excellent answer. And I, I absolutely see where you're going with this. You're not trying to create something entirely new in their minds. You're not trying to create mm. something entirely new in their budget. You're almost riding in the slipstream of your yeah. incumbent yeah, yeah, yeah. competitors. Yeah. They've done... That's exactly what we do. Yeah. They've done the work. They've, they've said, look, marketing mix modeling is important. Here's why it's important. Here's how we do it. And they've done it. And they've, I presume proven yeah. that it's oh, effective yeah. and you come in yeah, yeah. you ride that slipstream and say yes and yes and we can do it faster less expensively therefore you can deploy it more frequently more broadly and you kind of like you're you're in the peloton of of cyclists and you're you're bursting out and taking the lead after drafting off of the incumbents yes. which yes. is a really interesting way of you're not saying there's anything wrong with what they do other right. than that, you know, maybe it's a little slow and a little expensive and we solve for that. That sounds exactly. like a really smart way of almost doing like a judo pivot against a, uh, a large, powerful incumbent. 
Yeah, I think that this is kind of a, a new chapter to a lot of people talk about category design. And I think category design is really important and smart. But if you want to sell, if you want to sell faster and into especially the large enterprises, you benefit from taking an existing category, you mimic it, and you just do plus one. So all of a sudden, because inside their organization, they already have in their big budgets, it's a, it's a line item saying marketing mix modeling, because that's, what, that's the method you're using. If you're one of the biggest companies in the world, that's what you're using. That's, there, there's, no, there's no discussion. That's what they totally believe in, et cetera. The only reason why it only sits in really large companies is that it's bloody expensive and slow. So with the automation, not only, and this was actually a great surprise in a positive way for me, I thought that the existing attempts of doing it in a traditional way, that they would reject us and say, no, we already do that. We don't want to talk to you guys. But they are the fastest, they're the fastest to adopt because they, and I think it's, uh, I should have thought about this earlier, but it's very evident now because they already, it's already, there's a belief around it internally from the C-suite and down. People love what they see, but they can see the weaknesses. So it's a bit like what they've done in the consulting product. It's almost like prototyping. And we are coming in saying, now we have industrialized what you've done in the last five years. And you love it. You love the results. But now we're industrializing. So all of a sudden, that pitch is a low-risk pitch, right? It feels like moving to something safer. is less dependent on specific individuals. It's uh, now we're going from the ad hoc consulting-based approach to the, let's call that a pilot phase, and now we move into industrialization of it. I, I think by doing great ABM, a blend of target advertising with display ads, with LinkedIn posts that you target, with great thought leadership pieces behind that, and by pitching it as a small deviation to what they already buy, that's how you win, even as a small company. Okay, so what we've been talking about for the last few minutes now challenges the thesis of this episode, which is brand matters a lot in enterprise B2B because one could hear what we've talked about over the last few minutes and say, all right, this is just smart positioning, smart messaging, differentiated value proposition. It's not about proof analytics brand. It's mm -hmm. about all those other things and you're winning deals because you're getting all those other things right. Nobody cares about the proof analytics brand. Is that true? Or do you believe that in addition to this, you have to solidify a powerful brand? And if so, how do you do that? Yeah, yeah. You totally need to have a solidified brand. First of all, to, to look at, let's, let's attack it from another angle. So I'm sure a lot of listeners are thinking, so yeah, that's rhetoric, but how do you really quantify the value of the brand? So just to dwell a bit into the analytics space. So a lot of companies are trying to analyze their marketing with methods that are only seeing the short term. So any kind of attribution play, which is based on thinking customer journey, is only seeing the immediate results because they try to follow a click stream. And the click stream only is measurable when it's immediate. Because you, if you've seen an ad and you didn't act upon it, in a short-term analytics world, that doesn't exist anymore. But you've definitely influenced by it. And you might act on it when you see the seventh ad down the line. But that doesn't mean the seventh ad was the only ad that had a value. 
you were influenced by the others and you were influenced by seeing the brand implemented by one of our competitors and things like that. So when analyzing marketing, if you're only, and I give you a concrete example now that I think, I think many listeners will uh, think is interesting anyway. So we're, we're working with quite a few companies now in North America, Europe, and, and Asia, especially in Asia, particularly India. In marketing mix modeling, you're quantifying, first of all, the ROI. So you put in $1, you get $17 back, for example, and the ROI is 17 But you also quantify over which time period. And most things in marketing actually do have a very extended effect over time, especially anything brand-related. And we also quantify what's the volatility. So if you run 10 activities exactly the same, how much will the results vary? Now, the first piece, the ROI component, let's say when we're quantifying something, looking at the entire life cycle of that activity, not just how long it's been active, but actually how long time does it deliver a value in your brain? That can be sometimes month to years. I have a concrete example. So we're, 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 it's one of the companies we work with for the moment. When they look at a, a very short-term analytics, like a multi-touch attribution or online attribution play, two types of activities. I won't say which they are because then you figure out maybe who the client is, but they run, they run quite a few tactics. And two of them actually in the short-term analytics, they look equally powerful. $1 in gets, gets, gets you the same amount of dollars back with both activities. Now, when running marketing mix modeling on the same marketing mix, one of them appears to be 50 times more valuable. And then you go, but how is that even possible? Like, the, the, but the fact is that when you're quantifying the delayed effect, so I give you an example of something that has a very short delayed effect, search ads. I'm sure that you won't be able to remember any search ad you've ever seen because they have a very weak brand effect. Whereas I'm sure that if I would pull out a few well-known marketing videos that are now 10 years old, you'll probably recognize all of them. You go, yeah, remember that one? Remember that one? So they might still have a very small, but they still have an effect. And when you're quantifying marketing, looking only at the short-term perspective, which is what you end up doing in any kind of online attribution play, so that's actually one of our, the second, second segment. We're going for companies that have done online attribution for a while because they realize it doesn't work. They're like, oh, we're not catching delayed effects. We're not catching anything offline. So we need to go for something else. And a diagnosis is that when their customer acquisition costs or their CAC is gradually increasing, despite the fact that they think they're running a very data-driven model, then they know, or we know, that they are badly balanced between brand and conversion. And the reason why they are is that they can't see delayed effects. And when you can't see delayed effects, actually activity A and B look equally good, whereas one could be 50 times better when you look at it over the whole period that it, where it delivers the effect. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, when you said that that one activity over the longer term delivers dramatically more impact than mm -hmm. the other activity, is it because it's building brand? Like, is, is that what it comes it down is, to? It is. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you for, for clarifying that. That's okay. exactly it. So you have, you have certain activities. So take, take a few examples. You have amazing videos delivered over YouTube and TV. And there, I mean, maybe some humor in them or a superstar in them. That could have a very extended effect. So there is a great example coming from a Swedish company. I don't know if you come across this, but it was 
it was he won the Lion some years ago. It's six years ago actually, and they, it was Jean Claude Van Damme, you know, the Belgian um, karate guy who, well, at least before appeared is this, a lot of. Is this is this going to be Volvo? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there you go. So, I just yeah, I, I do remember it, and I can yeah. picture it. I can picture it in my mind. Yeah, so you have two Volvo trucks driving with autonomous, some kind of autonomous driving system that I want to demonstrate. And they have Jean-Claude Van Damme standing in a split position between them. So it's called the epic split. Anyway, that video is six years old. And I'm glad you remember it. Not everyone do, but actually most people, especially in Europe, uh, they definitely remember it. And I'm glad you did too. But, but anyway, so that's an example of a type of marketing that can have a very, very high effect, but over such a long time that the brain nor any short-term analytics can pick it up. So all of a sudden, if you look at the FanBam Epic Split and an online attribution tool, it looks absolutely useless. Whereas when you look at it through the marketing mix modeling lens, it looks absolutely fabulous. And I, I'm sure that many people in the marketing space can, with a gut feeling, sense that this type of activity has a much longer effect. I just can't see it. What I think they often draw us, they often think is like, maybe it's twice as effective because I can't see the latent effect. But what if it's 50 times more effective, right? It's not 50% or 5%, it's 50 times, so 5,000% more effective. And that's something you can only see when using a regression-based model, which is what marketing mix modeling is. The cool thing, when you actually analyze the marketing mix through the lens of regression modeling, is that you actually don't have to determine, is this activity brand building or is it converting? Because, and we have a too short episode to go into that. We could maybe run, that would be another episode to go through. <laughs> Are we doing another two-parter here? Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. exactly. <laughs> Every time we talk, it turns into a two-part episode. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, but anyway, we don't have time to dwell into why and how the method—sorry, the mathematical methods—are working. But the cool thing is that you can see those nuances in a completely different light, and that's not possible with a short-term, like the traditional kind of attribution play that many companies are running for. And and I think again, a lot of people, especially in the C-suite, they can have a gut feeling uh, around what has a long or a short effect. I, I'd say that most B2B companies looking at a, only like a Google Analytics or a Google 360 or anything like that, they see two little things. And they, they tend to overinvest into MQL generation, very search heavy. And again, going back to our early discussion on trust, so awareness, confidence, and trust uh, in the B2B space, you're not driving those things with a search ad. You need to be great at your thought leadership and also having high value content that is actually very brand heavy in your mix. Then someone would probably ask, so what is the best mix? Well, that's case by case. But, but the cool thing with, uh, well, especially an automated marketing mix modeling approach is you can, you can see the full picture where you cover online and offline stuff and also online stuff that are happening outside of your assets. So an online attribution play doesn't cover what's happening on your social media channels. It only covers when you click through. But we both know because we're, we're in the marketing space that any kind of content you need to post on the social media platform, if you link from it, you get so low algorithm points that 
you get very little visibility. So you need to post your videos and articles, etc., on the social media platforms. That is maximizing the visibility of your content. But the consequence is that a lot of interaction is happening on the social media platforms. So you can have people that have liked and commented like 20 of your videos and the 47th time they appear on your website through a search ad, then people go, yeah, that was the first touch. No, it was the 47th touch. You just can't see the others. And out of those 47, maybe 20 was happening offline. But sorry for going deep into this, but that's, uh, as you can hear, I'm quite engaged in this topic. So, but marketing mixed modeling is the only, this is why it's so popular among the PNGs of the world and the Intels and the Oracles, etc. It's the only approach where you can see the full picture hence leading to uh, more correct decisions on uh, reallocating money. I want to go into the weeds a little bit there in a moment on how you do that, mm-hmm. on how you're able to measure what's going on offline, what's going right. on in all these places that even a solid multi-touch attribution methodology and, and technology is not that picking up count. on. But before we do that, I want to go back to Jean-Claude Van Damme for a minute. As soon as you started to tell that story, immediately I knew where you were going and I could picture, I can right now, I'm picturing that ad in my mind. And Mm. I haven't watched that video for several years. I think there's two things going on here and I want to ask you about how the interplay of them. One is that is evergreen content. People are still watching that video today. Some people are going to listen to us talking about it. And they're going to go watch that video right now. So there's that long tail that happens. But there's also the long tail in people's minds, right? That ad, that video got etched etched into people's minds. I don't have to watch it again to to still, there's still some halo coming off of that for me. So when you talk about something having way outsized impact, 50x impact, whatever. You're not just talking about evergreen content and long long tail viewership. You're talking more about what happens in people's heads, right? Yeah. Those two tactics that I'm talking about right now, they're both seen as fairly short term, to be honest. So even the one that has a 50 times higher impact when you quantify the full effect over taking into consideration the delayed effect as the other one, that's still to, in all honesty, actually advertising tactic. They have vastly different uh, characteristics when you look at the delayed effect. Things that could have even higher impact, like Bandam, but there's also certain PR pieces. So as you know, you, you can Google a certain topic and you find an article that is from 2015. So it's five years old. It's still, uh, if it's a, a, an article that people have continued to hit with their search and then also stayed on for a fair amount of time, it's still having high scores within the Google algorithm. So is even though you're not pushing it, that piece of content can have a very, very long life cycle. Uh, let's call it evergreen. It's a good term. An example of things that can have a very long effect is certain things in the PR space. Uh, that could definitely be... Uh, I mean, we have some stuff from Proof Analytics at... I think two, three articles at Forbes. I mean, one, Forbes is a very credible publication. And, and two, we are there in, in a very editorial. We haven't purchased the space. Like, I, I know people are cheating a bit with <laughs> like paying for a space, but then obviously at least marked as, as sponsored content. This is like real PR generated uh, content and, and uh, highly credible. 
people are still referring to that when I speak to them. Like, yeah, I saw this article in Forbes and, and it's now over a year ago. This sounds like we're building up to make a strong case for really powerful creative platforms, right? The mm-hmm. Van Damme thing, aside from long tail viewership, it lives in our brains because it was yes. creatively powerful. And Apple with Think Different or with I'm a mm-hmm. Mac, I'm a PC. You don't have to go back and watch those. You can conjure those up in your mind. How much are we talking about the power of brand? And how much are we talking about the power of just fantastic creative? Well, uh, isn't that kind of relating to the same thing? So this is the point. When you analyze marketing correctly, you don't have to determine what is brand and what is not brand because everything is to some extent building your brand, even the search that it is just having a very small component of brand in it. Whereas the Van Damme epic split is a very high proportion, uh, high ratio of, uh, of the brand in it. What you find a lot of, especially in the B2C space, a lot of the things that they would classify as branding, they just put on the balance sheet. Whereas when it comes to anything performance marketing oriented, they want to measure it towards real sales, like in a customer acquisition cost or something. That's, it, you know, in my way, the wrong approach. It's, it's just a product of not being able to quantify the marketing mix properly. Yeah, I guess I, I guess I'm having a hard time in my own mind differentiating between brand and creative here, and in a weird kind of way, because we've just talked about some fantastic creatives that have had a positive impact. But then I think about Sonos. I know that Sonos makes great speakers. I mm-hmm. could I could not tell you if I've ever seen one of their ads, and if I have, yeah, yeah, if yeah, I have, yeah. I don't remember the creative platform. Like I don't remember the creative message. I right. or or Tesla. Right. I know. I, I have tremendous respect for Tesla's brand and their quality and their mission and everything, they literally don't advertise. So Tesla, there's something going on here, right? There's, there's, right? there's strong creative and then there's strong brand and, and it's like a Venn diagram, right? They cross over, but right. they don't, it's not one and the same. Well, first of all, uh, Tesla is spending a fortune on PR. So no, they don't, they don't purchase media space. I mean, they do, but not that much. They, they rely a lot on their PR machinery. So, and I, I would, that for me, that's a part of the marketing mix and they do spend money on it. So yeah. And as soon as it costs something, it actually, I mean, it's debatable whether it's, uh, you know what I mean, right? It's uh, the, the, it's not coming entirely by itself. They're feeding the beast. They're assisting journalists to find topics, etc. Like you do in PR. Yeah. Right. But I think also it's, it's important to remember that the brand is very much built on the customer experience, the customer advocacy, and the PR. And they're all in the, in the space of third-party endorsements, but also your own experiences with the product. And that leads into another topic, which is related. So in the world of marketing mix modeling, there's a term called halo impact. You actually mentioned it a minute ago halo impact or spillover effect. So if I'm, uh, I give you an example uh, with people. So let's say you have two friends, one of them, you've been working, well, you've worked with both of them professionally. And one of them you find amazing. He or she's just great. And the other one is mediocre in, in, in his or her profession. Then now you're going to, you're going to Stockholm for a, a weekend with your wife. And you want to know, which are the best hotels and restaurants in Stockholm. 
So if the person that you trust in his or her profession is giving you an advice, you will trust it more than the advice from the, from the other person. That's an example of a spillover effect. So because you're trusted in one domain, you can be seen as trustworthy in the other domain. And it has sometimes, I mean, sometimes it has a relevance, sometimes it has no relevance at all. So if you've been running Sonos loudspeakers and you've had a great customer experience and the, you perceive their technology as, as uh, spectacular, then when they launch a new series of loudspeakers, there's a spillover effect from the previous model into your perception about the new model. So you assume that it'll be equally good. We got a lot to talk about. You know what? I think we do, in fact, have a two-parter here. I'm, (laughs) I'm mindful of the fact we try to kind of bring these episodes into something that approximates an average commute. And we're kind of at that time now. And we have not dived into really how automated marketing mix modeling works. We have not talked about how you measure what happens offline, how you measure what happens on third-party channels, how you measure what happens in PR, how you get to these massively outsized impacts that are often missed by conventional measurement and even by pretty sophisticated multi-touch attribution measurement. So you can't do that in the space of a couple minutes here. So I think we're going to have to wrap this one up and we're going to have to come back for part two. Are you in on doing that, Chris? Of course. Yeah. Let's have a really nerdy session on digging into the data science. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll really try to keep it on a popular science level, but let's dig into the, the data science and the conceptual mathematics around marketing mix modeling. And the cool thing is that once, so this is the thing, and we actually run a series called data science for CMOs. As soon as you understand marketing mix modeling, you're like, how could I ever even look at something else? I mean, I know that's a very salesy sentence, but but that's really, that's really the experience. Like you go, how could I even analyze marketing like I did before? It's like, uh, it's like a, a few lights are going on like, boom. Oh, all right. So yeah. we, we covered the why it matters this episode. We're going to come back in part two and we're going to get into the what and the how. I look forward to it. Chris, thanks so much for joining us today. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you. And my brain always hurts a little bit after talking to you because, uh, you know, we come in, I've got an idea about where we're going to go and inevitably we go in some other directions and they're always good. So thank you so much, Chris. And <laughs> uh, I'll see you on the other side in, in part two of this. Great. Look forward to it. You've been listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you have an iPhone, we'd love for you to open the Apple Podcasts app and leave a review. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.